This episode of Inside the Goblin Universe brought to you by SeatsLink.com, the complete ticket experience. Use promo code GOBLINS with your purchase. SeatsLink.com. Hi, I'm Linda Zimmerman. I write about all kinds of topics, and you are listening to Inside the Goblin Universe. Hello again, folks, and welcome to another edition of Inside the Goblin Universe. I am one of your co-hosts. My name is Ronald Murphy. I am the other co-host, Sir Brian Bowden. How are Sir you tonight, Brian. Ron? Yes, I was Sir Brian. Exact same thing. Um, <laughs> right before the call, uh, I was at the ER with my uh, with my daughter. I have two daughters, so this is the, my youngest daughter, and uh, she was the last of the uh, Murphy children to get strep throat. So <laughs> that's what I was doing with my evening. Right after work, right to the ER. So good, fun stuff. So. What, what better way of taking your mind off of a kid's sickness than jumping right down that rabbit hole? I, I think it's a great idea, and we have a fantastic guest. She is absolutely fantastic. She's an award winner. She's a, 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 a multi, multi uh, book author of every subject from ghosts to UFOs to stone chambers, and, and it's a pleasure. I've been trying to talk with her for a while now, but... Linda Zimmerman, welcome to Inside the Goblin Universe. Uh, glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, we're actually glad to have you here as well, too, because we have a lot of authors on our program, um, but, but very few have the credentials that you have uh, to back up what you what you write about. Um, so, you know, I, I was looking over your, uh, your your resume here, and you have a degree in literature. I have a degree in literature, uh, but you also have some of the uh, hard sciences as well, don't you? Yes, that was my uh, undergraduate. I had a BS in science, in natural science, which involved chemistry and physics and biology. So, um, And I worked in a research lab for about 10 years. So I, I do come out of the science background. There you go. And that's a good thing. Brian and I, when, when we attend all these conferences, you have a lot of kids that come up to us because they see this stuff on television and they're kind of drawn to it, and rightfully so. And they ask, you know, how you become involved in such a field as, you know, whether it be cryptozoology or paranormal research. And I always point out the fact that, you know, to go to school and especially uh, study the sciences because you can never go wrong, first of all. And second of all, you can kind of figure out and be, you know, whether you're a skeptic or whether you're, you know, uh, searching for the answers, this actually gives you. Um, the rules by which, you know, uh, nature has to follow. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the more you know, the the better equipped you are to study these fields. Um, right. I never ran any into anybody who said, oh, no, I know too much. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what? If you attend the right paranormal conferences, you will indeed hear this kind of stuff. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, but, um, you'll get people that know it all. <laughs> that's right. Absolutely. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. But that being said, there there are mysteries out there, aren't there, that still inspire you to keep on looking and keep on digging deeper into these you know mysteries of the unknown. Oh, absolutely. And uh, people say, you know, why are you into so many topics? Because so many things fascinate me, and so many things are mysterious. We don't have the answers to to most things, and uh, it's it's the thrill of the hunt, it's the adventure, it's the research for me that keeps me going. Now, now, is it? Do you get? 
some people get uh, excited from it. The endorphins kick in, and and you know when they they're scared or or it is it or is it more that science and like you just said where you're finding answers to questions that have plagued the many uh, scholar on on certain subjects. Oh yes, there's uh, I mean there's a real intellectual curiosity. And then I'm a bit of a thrill junkie, so uh, <laughs> so it all, it all, yes, yes it, yes, it all combines to keep me hooked in, in these fields. I mean, obviously, if I went from, you know, the lab coat and, you know, test tube scene to running around, uh, you know, uh, researching <laughs> UFOs and the paranormal, it had a great allure. Yeah, you know, what What you're going to find with Linda's books is that that science comes out, that science background comes out because it's very it's very precise, it's very on, there's a lot of tech, tech, um, technological things that, that they're doing, experimentation uh, specifically, and what I've been dying to talk to you about is your uh, book on the mysterious uh, stone... Uh, chambers that we have out there and i believe it's called mysterious stone sites so yes. um i love, love i i've i've great read wonderful read everybody out there go to go to get it it's called mysterious stone uh stone sites and it's a basically a, a, a field guide to all these stone sites that that play uh pock the the landmarks i was in westchester putnam and sometimes into connecticut uh, sometimes into Connecticut, I I basically in this book concentrated on the Hudson Valley in northern New Jersey, but they certainly spread up through New England. Um, but you know, just for my purposes, um, I wanted to examine the ones in in my uh, immediate area. And were there, were there any specific ones that you you were set on on doing immediately? versus some that were, oh, we just came upon this one, or, you know, like a second, a secondary look versus the primary Well, well certainly the, the stone chambers were of uh, primary interest. That's what got me interested years ago. Someone told me about these chambers, and, uh, you know, you looked them over, and I'm like, well, that's, uh, that's pretty curious for a root cellar. And, oh, there are 200 of them, and uh, they're, they're all over the place. They're on the side of hills and, uh, you know, places that root cellars had no business being. And then when I found out some of them were astronomically aligned, and by that I mean sunrise or sunset on important days like the first day of spring, fall, winter um, would be the only time that the sunlight would come in through the door and illuminate the back wall. There's one in Carmel that is magnificent for a winter solstice sunrise. And again, I had to ask myself, would a farmer who's, you know, trying to eke out a living on that stony soil over there take the time, the years to study, you know, the, uh, the astronomical alignments and then cart tons of stone to align his potatoes to the winter, <laughs> to the winter solstice. It, uh, it doesn't really make sense. Yes. It, 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 I know that when we investigated over on the, the 301 side, um, we went in and there was one stone chamber we went into early, early on that had uh, you couldn't see it actually with the naked eye you needed to have uh, um, a UV 
or, or an ultraviolet filter on or night vision actually. And there seemed to be ruinic writing that was uh, poised on the back of the wall. It was, it was literally in there. And when you would, we looked at it, we have video of it with, um, through the infrared and then without it. And even when you're going up close to it, you couldn't see anything there. Now, I understand kids use these things a lot of times to hang out, and um, other people are using them to do not really nice things in them. But that was kind, of, was kind of curious. Did you ever find any type of other writings that are non, I guess, native to the, to the land in any of these? I have not found any inscriptions um, myself, personally. A couple of people have pointed out some things um, I don't have the expertise in, in languages to say what they are, but um, certainly there's a lot more to be discovered. What, what I would like to see happen is there's a, there's a test called OSL, Optically Stimulated Luminescence, where you can date uh, the last time soil was exposed to sunlight. Ah. There's different minerals like feldspar and quartz in the soil. So if they were to somehow dig under one of these chambers and pull out some of the minerals and soil and date it, um, that would, I think, put a, you know, stick a pin in this, in this debate if it were to come out you know, pre-colonial. And actually, there was a site in Upton, Massachusetts that did this. And uh, this chamber, at least the entranceway, was clearly pre-colonial. So we wow. have set a precedence in, in New England, but still, it's, uh, they have these blinders on um, that uh, insistent that no one built anything in stone before <laughs> the Europeans arrived. That's right. Now, that being said, do you feel that some of these uh, chambers were in fact, created by the Native Americans on these sites. That's what I'm leaning to because 200 of them um, would have taken a lot of people, a lot of time. And uh, just at this point, we don't have evidence for any sort of European uh, cultures spending, you know, there's no settlements that have been found. Doesn't mean they won't, but when I look at um, who had the time the, 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 and the motive, um, it would have to be the Native Americans. Right. And from an anthropological point of view, this is as groundbreaking talking about the Native Americans doing this as it would be um, European contact. Because as far as the, um, you know, the, the, the literature goes, the Native Americans did not utilize stone in this for, you know, for these purposes. So what was the reason? Um, could this, in fact, be some sort of consequence from European contact? Um, or what do, what do you think is going on, especially whenever we come to the idea of alignments, which is so typically European in regard to the, um, the placement of stone structures like this? Yes, uh, but if you look at the rest of the country, uh, Native Americans were building observatories as, or at least astronomically aligned sites everywhere else. If you look up the, uh, the Great Serpent Mound in Ohio, um, one of the most magnificent sites in the entire world, I think, is in Newark, Ohio, 
which is the great uh, octagon, which the Hopewell culture built this massive, massive earthworks, which was an incredibly precise lunar observatory. And yet most people have never heard of it. Um, Unfortunately, they have built a golf course in the middle of it in our infinite wisdom. Yes. Um, Yeah. Yeah. You have all the sites out west, uh, like Chaco Canyon, where there are these enormous multi-storied, multi-roomed buildings all aligned astronomically. So uh, people did it, uh, Native Americans did it all across the country. And one archaeologist said, why do they think Native Americans stopped doing it when they crossed the border into New York and, and New England? Um, right. It doesn't make sense. They needed to know what time of year it was for survival. So why wouldn't you build these calendar sites? Well, they're they're rather large and laborious calendar sites. I mean, some of the uh, slabs of stones that we've encountered, you'd need uh, it's 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 equivalent to something that you do for the uh, the uh, the pyramids. I mean, there's a major weight there. So I mean, I can think of other ways of of, of figuring out uh, the the on a smaller scale um, but then I also look to the other side of it is the spiritual side of, of the of the indigenous people of this country and how more in tune they were and in touch with things that are were long gone but somehow now are coming back into to vogue clearly there's probably um, some intense ceremonial uh, significance to these sites um, you know, it, it reminds me of uh, when they were building the cathedrals in, in Europe. They were, it was an act of devotion to, you know, spend your time right. helping in these type of things. And I think that's very much what um, these sites, if they are Native American, it would probably have been an act of devotion to help build them. Um, uh, but I did then look for other sites because the chambers are so controversial. I said, well, is there anything else? And I started finding numerous stone sites where large boulders are pushed into lines. Much e- Well, I won't say easy because they were still large <laughs> boulders, but, but manageable and generally on hilltops and throughout the Hudson Valley and northern New Jersey. They're, they're everywhere. They're quite complex. And again, it's something that would have been so simple to do. Native Americans were so in tune with the sky. Uh, you know, they watched it night and day. So why is it so heretical to think that a Native American could have pushed a couple of, of rocks in a line to know when the first day of summer or spring was? Yeah, that's a good point, but it's hard for established science to change his mind because what you're admitting then is that a culture that you had committed genocide on is an advanced culture. That's a very difficult thing. Even if this stuff happened, you know, 200 years ago, um, we as a people, uh, you know, uh, under the banner of the United States, is very slow to admit our wrongdoing in such things. So if it, sometimes it's better to have mysteries and question marks than to admit that this that the Native Americans that were here uh, were an intelligent uh, civilization. 
Absolutely. I mean, the um, I saw something the other day about manifest destiny, where you know the colonists, we we uh, it's our destiny to take over the rest of this country because right now it's all savages, and you know we need to redeem this land from the savages, and you know make our way across the country and. Look at the when the pilgrims and the Puritans arrived. Oh my God! I mean, you know, they here they came to this country for religious freedom, and then they were threatening the Native Americans: "If you practice your religion, we'll kill you." Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. Mentality. Exactly. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. To put this in perspective, though, um, Andrew Jackson, who only <laughs> hated possibly the British more than the Native Americans, uh, we have him on our twenty-dollar bill. So, I mean, to, to put that in perspective, I mean, and, and you know, he pushed the Seminole Indians into the Everglades, and that's whenever they refused to follow them any longer uh, to, to hunt them down. So, we're talking about people that were quite bloodthirsty to rid this land of any other human than a, a, a white Christian. Exactly. So um, I, I think that whole Puritan, uh, as you said, uh, type of attitude has, pro, you know, has stretched throughout history in the Northeast. And it, it, people just, you know, not everybody, but a lot of historians refuse to this day, to think the Native Americans were smart enough to, you know, to even build a stone wall. It's, it's outrageous. Do, do you think, um, seeing that there's more and more uh, research coming to light and information, that the Vikings may have been here a long, long time before anybody else has, do you think there's a possibility that they may have influenced or um, the, the natives, that Native uh, peoples of this land? And they have they have some kind of uh, I, I I remember I said runic writing and I, I'm not trying to like force that but I'm just all, with with the, the Vikings coming over here probably 600 plus years prior to what we've been doing um, is there is there some kind of connection there that you think may be worth visiting? Well, there's there's certainly uh, you know they were certainly here. That's in in North America. That that is no doubt. Um, could there have been influence? Uh, sure. Um, I would love to see some sort of Viking artifact found in the Hudson oh, Valley. Um, there's you know um, there's been some hoaxes in that regard. Unfortunately, um, it's just. From my perspective, I can speculate night and day, but until artifacts are found, you know, yep. it, it is just yeah. that, speculation. Well, yeah, you stated that beautifully, because as a history major and someone that just really is enthralled and has a passion for history, I would love to see a Viking connection. I would love to see something uncovered, a Viking longship along the Mississippi or something. I would love to see something like this being uncovered. But until that happens, you know, from a scientific point of view, we cannot say that the it definitely happened. You know, we, we can't. There's no way that we can. We always have to be skeptical about that. And the Vikings certainly made it to America at least 600 years before Columbus. But they may have not come any farther south than Newfoundland. 
Yes, that's uh, that's entirely possible. I, I would love to know where Vinland was. Um, oh, I, I suspect it was somewhere, uh, you know, in current uh, United States, but uh, we just don't know. That's right. And, if, you know, there's nothing I, – I've done a lot of research up in very rural uh, Maine and Maritime, uh, the, the islands up there off of uh, uh, Brunswick and in and, and Maine. There's no reason why a settlement in Newfoundland wouldn't simply hug the coastline and come down as far as Maine, possibly even Massachusetts. And, and I'm sure that there may have been a long ship that sailed up the Hudson River at one time, but they, there is no continuity with any of these settlements. They were here. They weren't here for a very long time. I'm sure they explored a little bit. But as far as leaving a lasting legacy in the New World, I don't think that proof is here. No, no, but uh, they have found in recent years another Viking uh, uh, iron smelting site uh, south of Lonza Meadows, much farther south than they thought. So I think it's like any series of discoveries. First has to come the one to, you know, break the mold and set the precedents. And then it frees up scientists to start looking for other examples. And I'm sure it will slowly creep down the coast. And uh, hopefully we'll all live long enough to say, well, of course the Vikings came to America. You know? That would be great. Yeah. Well, Massachusetts, among the poets, they had this very romantic revival. Do you remember, you know, there was poems written about these Vikings being found in armor. And there was this great nationalistic uprise saying that, you know, we are the, the offspring of these proud Viking uh, seafarers that came over here. Um, there's a, there is romance in this. This is a really cool thing to look at and to write poetry about. But again, if you're going to be taken seriously in the uh, in the scientific world, uh, we have to look at more than just romance to, to uh, for, for answers. Give me a hammer. Exactly. Give me, a, give me yeah. a hammer. Give me, yeah. give me one of the tools. <laughs> give me a saber or a sword uh, or a skin. Give me some. Um, D- give me some DNA. <laughs> DNA would be great. You know, from from uh, you know from ancient cultures, like you know, if they can test Native American populations and find. Uh, some hints of Scandinavian DNA, that would be fascinating. See, yeah, that's a great. good point. Yep. Because why couldn't there have been, you know, uh, breeding, you know, inbreeding among these, these, these two cultures, which seems very plausible because history has taught us anytime two uh, disparaging cultures come together, there is usually some sort of, you know, exchange of DNA in some form or the other. So, you know, interesting, but we do have hints of at least European um, uh, connections to some tribes, or at least that that tentative connection to these tribes, like the Mandan. Correct? We, we there's there's this idea that there might these this might have been a Welsh tribe that had your you know well yeah Welsh tribe that came over and kind of intermingled with the Native Americans, but I don't think that, that has been proven uh, conclusively uh, by any stretch of the imagination. No, and then there's. Uh in the Nova Scotia area, the Mi'kmaq, or if some people say Micmac, mm. um, which, you know, they have their legend of Glooscap, who uh, people have said may have been a European. And, uh, 
you know, you look at some of these these Indian legends, and especially in the Northeast, and you know, they can be interpreted a number of ways, but it it may be a clue. Yes, that's that's right. A very interesting clue. Now, I have had the opportunity whenever I was in graduate school to uh, study um, the uh, the Serpent Mound, and I thought if there was any Viking connection, it might possibly be here, because the idea that the Vikings like to use these kind of animalistic totems and all this kind of stuff, and it has this really cool, almost Celtic look to it whenever you first examine it. But I think after everything's said and done, this does stand on its own as far as an artifact goes. It doesn't really have to be in any particular genre. I think what you're talking about is a very unique Native American creation there in uh, Chillicothe, Ohio. Yeah, I, I think I think as well that... Um it, it clearly, you know, serpents were, we have uh, serpent uh, walls right here in the Hudson Valley. You know, the serpent was something uh, very important to the Native Americans in terms of symbolism. And again, the, the astronomical alignments for solar and lunar, uh, it, it's just brilliant. And uh, we need to start giving credit to Native Americans for their accomplishments. 100% agree with you. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't have the, and I'm going to do it this way, the Al Santa Rica question of the night. <laughs> Which, uh, <laughs> because, um, when, when you were studying and doing the work for, 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 for the Stone Chambers book, I, I believe you were at uh, Beacon Mountain or you had a permit to, to look in that area and you discovered these massive parallel walls that seem to go into the Hudson River. Can you, and then I think your permit was uh, almost immediately revoked when uh, the authorities caught wind of it. This is what I was told. Can you go into that uh, with some detail or about what uh, possibly yeah. could be taking place there? Because yes, it sounds very core, interesting. There, there is a core of truth in, in that, but let me, uh, let me pare that down. Sure. Um, there, <laughs> um, in the New York Times there and local paper uh, to my area, there were articles in the year 2000 and 2002 that talked about sonar scanning of the Hudson River. They were looking for uh, shipwrecks. Uh, they were looking at uh, any sort of signs of pollution. And as part of that scan, they found two parallel uh, stone walls that ran for hundreds of feet under the Hudson River. And the scientists determined that the last time the water level was low enough to be able to build those walls was at least 3,000 years wow. ago. So I was, you know, I was like, why isn't this front page news? Why yes. isn't this being explored? Uh, so I contacted the DEC, the uh, Department of Environmental Conservation, who was part of this project. I should say first... I personally contacted three of the project scientists who all confirmed, yes, we remember seeing the, the walls. It created great excitement. Um, they couldn't tell me exactly where it was, but they said in Newburgh Bay. So then I contacted the DEC. I said, could I have scans of these walls? Well, who told you about these walls? What do you want to know this? What do you want to know this for? And I said, well, this is great historical significance. Well, we never said they're stone walls. 
I said, I said, well, I talked to this this professor, that professor, and this professor. Oh, so it was, um, you know, they treated me like a criminal, and finally they sent uh, two images of the actual scans and then a chart they had made of these very long walls, maybe as long as 900 feet long. Wow. Um, yeah, parallel walls, and but they wouldn't tell me where they were. So... That's a curious reaction from, from an agency about something that's well over 3,000 years old that apparently is buried and not many people know about it. So yeah, it, 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 tends to, I, it just tends to say there's something more to this that no one wants to talk about for whatever reason, but now, I, now you got me. I'm curious. Now I want to talk about it. Oh, yeah. He said, well, it, there's no proof that they're stone walls. And, you know, the, the, it's, it's, it's just, you know, hearsay. It, the the DEC was part of this study, so he's you know <laughs> he's he's you know he's he's talking down about his own his own agency trying to disprove this. Well, maybe it is or maybe it isn't stone walls. Well, why don't you throw a diver in the river for an hour and determine it? Yeah, they, they right. That's what I oh, yeah, especially if this goes back, you know, that far in time. We're talking about stone walls that are leading down. Uh, it's incredible. It's incredible to overlook this. And how many other things have been overlooked in, in this nation's history? And also, how many things have been destroyed in our nation's history because they were not considered important? Absolutely. Many of the stone chambers um there's a site in uh, Miami, uh, uh, probably one of the most ancient uh, uh, circles cut into the coral. And in the 1940s, they put an apartment building on top of it. And right in the uh -huh. middle of the circle, that's where they put the septic tanks. No, right, oh, right, right. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. So there we are, crapping on, on Native American history. Uh, Once again. That's yes. right. That's right. Yeah, here in Western Pennsylvania, there was a. I mean, we, this was a part of the mound building culture, of course. Uh, and uh, there was so many people that I had interviewed, in writing uh, one book about. You know, there was these these Indian burial uh, mounds on their property that were just simply plowed over by their grandfather or their great grandfather because these things just got in the way. As a matter of fact, the only reason why the serpent mound came to so much attention is because the farmer that was going to plow it over to plant up there decided to have somebody come and take a look at it uh, before he did. Uh, even Stonehenge over in Great Britain was for a time considered to be uh, taken down and uh, dismantled. So if you can believe what people would do to these sacred sites of antiquity, it boggles the mind. It, it truly does to think about what people find value in. It's incredible ignorance is what it is. And one of the things I hope to do with my lecture and, and this book is to bring awareness. I gave a talk to a private hiking group a couple of weeks ago, and they went from casual interest when I started to I thought they were going to get, you know, pitchforks and clubs and go, uh, <laughs> you know, rally in support of these sites that are, well, why isn't anybody doing anything? Why don't they recognize these for what they are? And I was like, well, my job here is done. I've been, <laughs> I've incited a near riot. Um, but this is what has to be done uh, for politicians, for in schools, 
for local history, start telling kids what is in their area and and what is of value so it doesn't get destroyed by future generations. I, I would love for them to do that. That's, I have a, a 10-year-old and a 6-year-old. They're not learning in school. They're being programmed, and I'm teaching them a lot more than they're learning. Um, one of the things that I have near my house is uh, not that far from me. I could see it when I walk, go right outside my, my building. There, there was a... Um, George Washington's Fort Number One, not Number Fifteen, not Number Twenty. Number One was mm-hmm. I used to go past it uh, walking to school all the time. It was just a little old foundation, and I didn't know about it at the time. I'm a very big history guy, and I, the fact that the the local government of New York City and 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 the borough president of where I am allowed a a nursing home to destroy that just to build another building. I think is a high crime because one on, on on the Anglo-Saxon, you know, the American side, this is George Washington's fort number one. Okay. We fought, you know, the British, we needed the forts, but as far as a landmark is concerned, you, you know, it wasn't that big. You could have, you've could have put a fence around it. And now every time I look at this nursing home, I'm just, I, I get angry because we lost a piece of history that is valuable. Um, and the, Kids today aren't learning the history that they should learn. So no, that's outrageous. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's very frustrating. Um, but I, I'm glad that you have you've documented the these these uh, stone chambers. I mean, and with GPS. And did you do any other type of experimentation? Because we were there and we started using um, frequencies, different ra- um, uh, audio frequencies. And we seemed to get some kind of anomalies when we were in one of the stone chambers on 301. Uh, we, we were videotaping using the FLIR, which I love that camera. Um, but when we, we would get a normal, you know, the FLIR view, it was definitely colder in the chamber. But once we started playing around with different frequencies on a, on a frequency generator, it seemed to, that, that a purple, I would say archway, seemed to start to appear. Did you find any anomalies in, in some of these locations other than the alignments? Uh, the only thing I have found is some magnetic variations where um, there does seem to be some natural earth magnetic fields that are, are different at these sites. And those have been uh, documented as well. And, you know, that area used to have a lot of uh, magnetite mines you know, right. magnetic iron. And so I have a feeling that there is still a lot of that throughout the area. And one thing I was talking about the other day is that I read this fabulous article that uh, people uh, before the technological age were much more sensitive to natural earth fields and energies. Nothing supernatural. You know, there are magnetic right. fields, right. there are different things feel different and we've lost that you know we've lost touch with the night sky we've lost touch with all of these and i think some of these sites you know people would be walking by age you know thousand years ago say and something would feel different about the land and to them you know they wouldn't say oh well it's obviously a magnetite deposit here or something or you know seismic activity they might say this must be a spiritual place so i think uh, a lot of sites were built because of the way the land felt to the people 
um, you know, long ago. So uh, that's fascinating with the FLIR camera. I, I have one. I will have to have to try that out. Try it out, and there's a couple of good tone generators you can get for even your portable phones if you have a smartphone. If you hook it up to a Bluetooth, um, you're, you're going you're to find a nice, interesting surprise there. And I think there is something to the validity of it being sacred for alignment purposes, but I think there's also possible, and Ron has discussed this before as well, we talked about portals. Um, and I know that's getting into a very esoteric side of it and, and things that are, you know, out there. But the possibility of portals being around um, has been talked about for, for many, many years, not only in, in, in our country, but definitely going to Europe, um, that these are sacred sites. Somehow they, there was some kind of portal there. I think you're going to find some great results. Uh, you're gonna, you, there's going to not be another book out of you on this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, first I have to get somebody in in authority to acknowledge the possibility that they might be Native American. Uh, we have you talked to any of the local uh, uh, Native American peoples that that's, that have uh, still have connections there, or or still are around more modern than if you gone west? Have you discussed this um, with them? I not for this particular area. I mean, there are some some distant descendants of of the Native Americans, but uh, when I was writing about local history, I remember reading that the the last um, Native large Native American group left the area in the early 1800s. And, you know, sure, some did stay, but the stories and the lore that like you would have out in, say, the Hopi lands or something just doesn't exist for this area. Um, I've talked to some in the Connecticut area who, you know, are, are fighting the same battles there. Um, so I wish we had, you know, uninterrupted oral history that talked about this area. But if we do, I am not currently aware of it. No problem. Is it all right, Ron, if I take her into a different direction, but it does kind of lean towards the stone chambers? Yeah, absolutely. You know <laughs> what? I, I would, uh, I've been wanting to have a conversation just on the idea of stone chambers for a while. We wanted to get the right person on. Linda, you are absolutely the person to have. But yes, Brian, I will trust you. Go ahead. Let's, well, let's well, see where this I'm, goes. I'm, I'm gonna, it's because it's, the, it's just a very similar area. Linda, did you ever discover any type of connection between the stone chambers in the area and that go into Connecticut and the Hudson Valley UFOs okay. or UFO related related to these stone chambers yes I right. did not I did not discover that I have to give right. credit where credit is due um, right. during the the wave of the 1980s um, Dr. Hynek came to to the area, J. Allen Hynek of Blue yes. Book Project, um, Project Blue Book, and he talked to a local uh, man who I, I don't want to use his name, but um, he had had a very intense sighting, and as he's talking to this man about the sighting, he said, you know, what is it about this area? Is there anything unusual? And the man said to him, 
I don't think there's any connection, but we have these stone chambers around here. So they started, he and Heineck and some other people started looking, and sure enough, where there were concentrations of UFO sightings, there were these stone chambers. So that was where the connection um, was first born. Whether it is valid, whether it is complete coincidence, I can't say, but certainly a lot of sightings took place in areas with high concentrations of these stone features. That is very, very interesting. And I was just wondering, you know, I, I grew up, I remember seeing these uh, Hudson Valley UFOs on uh, ABC News, and um, not to give them a plug, and I remember <laughs> turning to my father and saying, hey, can we go up to this place to go look for the UFOs? He immediately looked at me and goes, are you out of your mind? <laughs> <laughs> well, you so. missed it. You should have been here. Yeah, well, I've, I've, I've had a couple of good sightings in Connecticut as well. So, yeah, I should have been there. Yeah, that, well, yeah, Connecticut and um, they call it the Hudson Valley UFOs. But really, on any given night, it either started in Connecticut and came into the Hudson Valley or vice versa. I mean, Route 84, um, basically from, uh, uh, you know, the Putnam County area up to Danbury was, they, they should call that the extraterrestrial highway because <laughs> so many sightings took place there in the 1980s. There's another highway, highway in Connecticut that you want to look into is the Route 8, which goes from, it, it starts at Winstead, Connecticut, and it goes all the way down to uh, 95. Um, that's where actually Al, Al has, uh, parallel to that, had his uh, air, uh, experience down there. And my non-believing girlfriend, who is now my wife, <laughs> um, um, had a, we had a, a close encounter that was absolutely out of this world, basically giant stadium flying over your head, not making a sound. And in a split second, it disappeared. Wow. So check out that area as well. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so in your experience and in your studies, have you come to a conclusion what UFOs might actually be? Where are they, where are they from? Who's piloting them? Is anybody piloting them? What are they? Well, you know, there's so much controversy. Oh, they're, they're government black projects. It's this and it's that. But my research took uh, the UFO phenomenon in this area back to 1908, and in fact, Bristol, Connecticut was one of the first uh, sightings of this wave that went on for about two years, spread through the Hudson Valley, up through New England, into Canada. They were objects that were flying at night. They had very bright lights and no planes were flying at night in, that, in 1908 or 1909 right, right. and no planes had lights. They could hover. They could move extremely fast, and they could stay. They they were seen in the air for hours. We had absolutely nothing. There is no way you can say that was a government black ops because we were flying stick and fabric uh, Wright brothers planes. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just it's to me whether they were piloted or not, they were clearly not ours. And what did that leave? 
Right. I mean, are they craft, though? Um, because what I have been finding, especially whenever you're relating these things to, um, you know, sites that we could already deem may have been perceived as sacred by the Native Americans, is it possible that these are simply manifestations of Earth energies as well? Well, there's certainly been uh, some strange sightings that light phenomena or just some sort of energetic field. But I think there is clear indication they are, some of them at least, are solid objects. They leave imprints in the ground. Um, You know, you're looking at them and they they look like metal or, you know, something like that. So... Um, I don't think we can say it is any one thing. I think it could be a variety of things. Um, you know, there's the interdimensional uh, theory or, or their, their alien drones. I don't know, but it's, uh, you, can't, you can't sit there and say, here, this is what the UFO phenomena is. Right. And, and you got to also bring up the fact that um, going into the Hudson Valley area as well with the UFOs, uh, author Whitley Strieber, who lived up, I guess, near the Pine Bush area, who had his experiences there, you know, with uh, his very famous books. You know, on his property, I found out that there were stone chambers. So That I did not know. Yeah, there were stone chambers, I believe, on his property or just butting up against, against his property. I talked to somebody actually when we were, I, I saw you up in the Pine Bush Festival. We were talking to somebody locally, and they, they knew where he was and, and where his house is located. And they said, yeah, there's stone chambers there. And there's also this cave system that happens to be there that has high strangeness. So the connection to these stone chambers, UFOs, and... I mean, if it goes, it starts in 1908 or whatever, or 1800. I mean, there's got to be something more to this. And I believe now we do have government-related crafts there because down Sikorsky's right down Route 8. Um, but this, is, this far exceeds what, what we're, is known to us at this point. Well, uh, if you uh, read the New York Times article on December 16th uh, last year that um, the whole uh, advanced aerial threat in uh, investigation program that the depart- that the government was running when they claimed they had no interest in UFOs, uh, if you're familiar with that, um, and they had the footage of the uh, F-18 pilots trace uh, uh trying to chase the, what they called a 40-foot tic-tac yeah. which had yeah right no form of propulsion no wings no nothing um which hovered and went blindingly fast and the government uh, the the man running the program said we do not have any craft like this in our inventory nor does any other country so if they're admitting in the 2000s here, you know, just a few years ago, that we don't have anything that can do that, that sheds a new light on the whole history, particularly all those craft in the 1980s. If we don't have that technology now, we sure as hell didn't have it then. Oh, yeah. Definitely yeah. something to think yeah. about. Yeah, I know. Now, 
getting back to the Hudson River area, um, <laughs> what happens now whenever we add the UFOs, uh, these sacred stone sites, or these, these stone sites, whether they be sacred or not, plus the idea of hauntings and certain type of cryptid activity like Bigfoot and werewolves or dogmen. How do you account for this high strangeness? Now, Brian and I, when we do that, when we talk, of course, inside the Goblin universe is kind of relative to the idea of portals and such. But it seems like there is a massive amount of energy up there that's being tapped by various paranormal phenomena. Well, it is clearly one of the most haunted areas in the country. Um, I've been investigating haunted sites here for over 20 years, and I, I haven't even scratched the surface. And then the cryptids, that was not anything I ever thought I was getting into, but people keep telling me their stories. In fact, just last month, it was it was one of the most intense interviews I ever conducted, young man in his 20s, very familiar with the woods, you know, a real robust, avid hiker, came face to face with some tall, hairy thing that he stared right in his eyes. And it so affected him. He was absolutely sobbing, crying his eyes out. He lost it. He lost it. And a young man like that, who is, you know, so affected. It just gave me chills and goosebumps to hear the the terror and the wonder in his voice. And you're like, either this guy is completely crazy or he saw something that has completely altered his life. And I keep hearing these stories and I'm like, wow, where, where am I living? What is, what is going on here? <laughs> Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna make the invite because I know Al will invite you anyhow. We've got a couple of spots, and it's up in the Hudson Valley area, and we'd love to take you along and have you take a look. Um, and this is a really good shot. You may also have an encounter with these things at a distance, um, and it does change your perspective dramatically. And for someone to come out and just tell you as a, as a young person. I mean, that, there's a lot of machismo that, that goes on, like, I'm, I'm tougher than this. When someone's telling you this and breaking down, especially a woodsman, you got to take this thing um, a, little, a lot more for the real than the fake. There's nothing to gain from this. And that's, I, that's right, the problem. Absolutely. As I said, you know, somebody from, of his age and background to be so affected by, I mean, this was genuine tears. We had, to, you know, I had to pause a couple of times so he could try to compose himself and uh these that's what people don't get about whatever paranormal ufo cryptids whatever you're talking about these are life-altering experiences and yeah. uh, you know i tell a lot of people be careful what you ask for when you're going to look for these things because that's right they yep. are going to rock your world. Yeah, that's that, that's a great point. People come up to me and ask me all the time, 
well, how do you know these people just aren't lying to you? And I keep on bringing up, you know, whenever a 50-year-old man comes up to me, you know, the kind of guy that has tattoos on his face, and, you know, he, he's, he's obviously would be able to smash me in a single grip of his hand, <laughs> and he starts weeping openly because he saw something out in the woods he can't explain. That's how you know. Because it's it affects them system uh, systemically, doesn't it, Linda? You know they don't understand how to pr- uh, process this psychologically, mentally, physically. It is one of those things that has so upset their worldview that they really ha- they they see you almost as a priest. They're they're making a confession <laughs> to somebody, but uh, yeah, whatever I tell people, you know how how can you? How do you know who to believe and not to believe? If a, if, a, if a huge gentleman comes up to me and starts weeping like a baby about a Bigfoot experience, I'm more apt to believe him. Yeah, you make a fabulous point there. Personal interviews are, are key, are, are yes. crucial, because you can look in somebody's eyes, you can read their body language, you know when they're, you know, yeah. full of it. Um, but when it's a genuine thing, uh, absolutely, absolutely. You are, you are dead on. It will, it will change your life and you can see the trauma, uh, in their voice and features. Yeah. It, it, it's, it, it's definitely, you know, when people are, people aren't good liars anymore and there's a lot <laughs> of tells they really aren't. And I remember hearing a, an interview that you did recently where you were asked just on the UFO side. Uh, what, what, you know, of, of the thousands of people you interview or whatever, what percentage you think are, are not telling you the truth or just, you know, out of their minds and what percentage are legit. Now you gave a 10% people out of their mind, um, which I think is probably a great answer right there because, um, there's a lot of people seeking attention. There's a lot of people have mental illness, but just think, just think about that number. So that means 90% of the population believe this, believe what they saw, and have seen something. And yeah. I, it's just fascinating. And when you think about the the fraction of people who have actually reported <laughs> these things, um, you know, it's, it's minuscule. So you can take those numbers where, you know, during the Hudson Valley wave in the 80s, they say, oh, there was, you know, a thousand reports that night. Well, what about the other 100,000 people who didn't report it? Yep. Um, you know, or even 50,000. The numbers are staggering. And it, it's just, it's mind-blowing. And I, I'm, I'm hopeful, hopeful that we're at the cusp of actually having this stuff revealed to us, be it by these, these creatures and these crafts saying, you know what, let's just show ourselves and let them know that, that we're really here. Um, I don't. I don't trust a governmental reveal because th- there's an agendas there. But I, I. I would love to have that moment. I'd love to have that. I told you so. <laughs> you know. You know. Because so many people give you uh, grief. I know that when we go some places, my missus like don't talk about whatever, and she doesn't do it all the time. You know. But it comes up if you meet a couple of pilots. You want to ask them, and as the evening goes on, eventually people. Are, well, there was this one time, and that's all you need. And then someone else will come over, and then you start to get into this conversation, and then I get the evil eye look. But <laughs> especially when they find out that I, you know, oh, I have a paranormal podcast, um, and I investigate it. But I think we need to be more open to this, and not, um, you know, not so cynical with these people. That's why we're here, Brian. 
right? That's why yes. we give them an open forum. They're welcome to step inside the rabbit hole any time they want to. Well, I'll tell you what. Our rabbit hole is actually getting close to closing. We have it's about closing, four, that's right. four, four minutes, I'm going to say. Uh, and I apologize to everybody because Linda has so much stuff. We'd, ha- we'd love to have you back on to go into just the ghost side of it, what you've been doing. Oh, of course. Uh, you know, eventually. But four minutes. Go ahead, Mr. Murphy. You lead. No, you know what I was going to say. I, I think the ghost would be very appropriate next time we have you on. Uh, because I, I remember the first time I read uh, Rip Van Winkle. And, you know, there's this great uh, this great classic uh, work of American literature. And there's also a cool little uh, segment within the story about a ghost sighting of pirates, uh, you know, coming up off the, <laughs> the Hudson River, moving into the valley as well, too. So I would like to talk about the ghosts of that area. Also, even the, um, if I'm not mistaken, I believe the Flying Dutchman has also been spotted <laughs> up in the Hudson uh, River Valley as well. So I think that, that would be a great thing to talk about next time you come on. Sure, just tell me when. Brian <laughs> uh, will make that. I, I, I'll tell you what, when we have guests, we're very selective on who we bring on the show. We just don't bring anybody on. And we actually do our research as well. So I would love to have you on as a regular. You know, maybe once every couple months we'll have you on here and, and we'll talk about new things that you're looking at. And, uh, and you know, I really want to revisit the stone structures again as well. Sure, there's a lot more to talk about in that uh, area, and uh, if this gives people, you know, your listeners an opportunity to come forward with, you know, their stories, then then I'm certainly all for it. Absolutely. And, and you know, while we're at it and, and getting the listeners to come forward, Linda, where can our listeners find you and get in contact with you? Well, I have quite a lot of uh, Facebook pages, but the the main way you can get in touch with me is through my website, which is gotozim.com. That's G-O-T-O-Z-I-M.com. Or look me up on one of my Facebook pages for the Stone Sites or the Hudson Valley UFOs or my author page. That is awesome. We're going to also include that on uh, Inside the Goblin Universe, our, our website our Facebook page and our Facebook group, as well as uh, I do have another group called the UFO Roundtable, which we I think you're familiar with. You may have uh, been there or, or know people that have come down to talk, and we'll be putting that all over just to spread the word and uh, hopefully you know, get you to, people to read your books because I think it's it's important. You, you are the author that I, I, I highly recommend. When people ask me, who should I read? Um, you're right on the top of the list. So, well, thank you. Gentleman. And, um, and just to change subjects briefly, um, sure. my third my third Hudson Valley zombie apocalypse novel will be out yes. next. <laughs> that is awesome. Oh, right, right, right. Hey, I, I, I didn't know you wrote a zombie apocalypse uh, novel, so I'll be looking forward to this as well. Chemographic yeah. novel, right? Yeah. yeah. Yes. So, this, uh, she... love, love those zombies. <laughs> oh, I live with two little ones. <laughs> They're little zombies at times. <laughs> they don't want to eat brains. They just want to just want. And I love them to death, so it's fine. But it's been absolutely fantastic having you on. I do thank you and for, for you taking the time out of your day to come visit, visit us inside the Goblin Universe. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. All right, Brian, that, that's it. So uh, we will sign out then, right? There's, sure. nothing, there's nothing left to do. Um, I am one of your co-hosts. My name is Ronald Murphy. 
I'm Heather Collar, Sir Brian Bowden. And we give a big thank you to Linda Zimmerman for stepping inside the Goblin Universe. So until next week, uh, we will see you on the other side. The concept of shape-shifting is ingrained on our psyche, lurking in our collective unconscious and stalking our nightmares. Crypto guru Ronald Murphy tracks the dogmen through history, beginning with the hunt in the dim beginnings of the human race and follows the tenuous tracks of the werewolf to the modern age. This compelling study seeks the monster in all of us but more importantly shares the readers the man behind the wolf. On Dogman is available on Amazon.com.